Welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. It is going to be an amazing journey today. Hope you're ready for liftoff. We are live now. Well, this is a little different today. We're on Planetary Health First, Mars Next, and we are doing a Halloween shout out. Uh, we have a special, amazing guest. You might not be able to see him because he's in his browser costume, which is crazy, super cool. We got Dr. Ryan Vega. And our topic today is uh, nothing more than what we're all hearing about, generative AI and healthcare trick-or-treat. Uh, Dr. Ryan Vega, I know you've been on in the past, but just for those who don't know you, um, if you could just uh, share a little bit about yourself and what you're up to, that would be awesome, just to give a backdrop. I appreciate you having me on, Michael. I, the AI-generated Bowser face is gone now, so I think I can see you again. <laughs> uh, so I am the chief health officer for a company called Vantic. Previously was in the Department of Veterans Affairs for almost a decade uh, practicing clinician and then have the distinct privilege now of working at the intersection of really some amazing technology and software that's being applied to a whole host of different use cases. Uh, and certainly AI is a big part of what we do. Now, we don't develop the actual AI inferences, but as an orchestration platform, as sort of a digital nervous system, we do delve and deal a lot with how you apply AI to various different situations. In my case, it's healthcare. Uh, and it's inescapable that generative AI would be uh, a part of, of the discussion that we have internally to the company. And now about a week ago, made some really exciting announcements about new capabilities in the software development ta uh, tech stack that we have on how folks can leverage generative AI for these real-time complex systems. So really excited to be here. Uh, excited uh, that Halloween's coming up. I've got a, a six and a four-year-old. And so I, uh, I I joke that they really are the ones that influenced me to dress as Bowser, but uh, it may be more of my obsession with the Super Mario Brothers movie than there. So we'll take it. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, kids get us totally hooked and engaged in all these things. So that's awesome. I know you're going to get the Super Dad Award for that. So um I feel so out of it. I thought you were going as browser. <laughs> so I thought it was like a tech sort of play. Now I, I, I stand corrected. So that's cool. I guess I have technology on my mind. So um, anyway, so that is now corrected. So um, t where should we start on this uh, today? What would be a good landing that's a, point? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know because I feel like every day is a new day with this. It's it's moving so fast. I think it's really hard to separate fact from fiction, hype from reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I think to some degree as well that the, I'll call it the marketing of, of generative AI, the experience of sort of the generative capabilities has sort of pulled everyone into this direction. And we, in some ways have lost sight uh, to a degree of the importance of traditional AI, whether it's going to be for things like drug discovery or a lot of where future applications of just traditional AI or machine learning tech techniques can be applied, not to just healthcare, but to other uh, verticals and, and other markets. So 
I think the the first place that I always try to take a step back and understand is where are we, not just within the technology lifecycle, but but what is happening today with this sort of new capability? And the way that I think about it and the way that I uh, try to make sense of it is what I'm seeing is a a new paradigm, a, a significant change in the way that we as humans are interacting with these technologies, with these capabilities. And, and I think by doing so, we really need to contextualize this and define it as a relationship, that we are sort of entering a new relationship with these capabilities. And whether it's the way that we interact with enormous amounts of knowledge and data and have the ability to have human language be sort of the connection point between ourselves and machines or systems, or even it's the way that we apply artificial intelligence into our workflows, into our lives, and leverage the technology for whether it's efficiency or enhanced clinical diagnosis. I really see this as a new relationship and sort of the the, the paradigm is changing and how these tools are going to be sort of everywhere, for lack of better uh, terminology. Uh, And that's sort of inescapable. And in a lot of ways in which you look at the internet defined and changed the way that we relate with multiple different uh, uh, cellular devices or uh, computers or streaming services, or in some ways, even the way we relate with each other. Um, What we're doing right now was not something possible or commonplace 30 years ago. So I think that's a real thing that we don't really know yet is how does this relationship unfold? And so I also think that that gives us a lot of opportunity to really take a step back and define that relationship. What is it that we want out of that relationship? Let's put some boundaries and some context. Some of it's going to be need to be regulated. And so that's really where I start is where are we? What's what is happening? What are we seeing? And then I think we can begin to unpack what is so unique, what is so opportune, and also to be worried about what sort of some of the peril that may come. Uh, and then with any major transformation, uh, there is always sort of a yin and a yang. Yeah, I, I like how you've kind of set the ground rules for this conversation. Um, you know, you put in regulatory regulation, kind of getting the framework, um, but also we really don't know. And um, I think that's a huge thing. I'm not hearing enough of that. You know, I do hear that from some of these AI research, you know, scientists that we really don't understand this. And so I I think um, I heard a little bit of that from you. So I think the guardrails is good. And it's also to be excited. But sometimes what I I had a, a conversation earlier with someone that there's 30 billion dollars for cloud marketing. So I could only imagine where that spills over for the marketing for this new AI, right? Generative AI. It's probably almost, who knows, there's data out there to get it, but it's it's in the billions, right? And so there's so much uh, rush to just invade the market. And so I'm glad we're having this conversation to sort of start, you, you know, just having a healthy conversation for the application and the constraints and and also the excitement so yeah look there's a lot to be excited about but i think you're you're exactly right and 
we need to be honest in and and the notion that that anyone can really predict where we're going to be in five years is is borderline silly because we don't know and know in the early eras of the internet where things would end up i don't know that anyone really predicted the sort of new markets that would emerge from content generation and the sort of the explosions around podcasts and streaming youtube etc frankly i don't think when i grew up i you know when people ask me what do i want to be uh, a youtube influencer <laughs> or sort of content that wasn't on the list it wasn't an option mm -hmm. uh, and so i think that we we should be honest and say we don't know um if you read wolfram who's got a phenomenal book about really unpacking this space and and uh what is chat bg chat gpt and what is it doing he sort of refers to it in this notion of being computationally irreducible meaning mm. that don't fully really understand cannot computationally reduce exactly what it is doing um or sorry i would just say why it's doing what it is other than we understand sort of it's the next best word and then there's the ability to sort of generate this content uh which is it's it seems magical and it's very impressive um suffice it though that large language models are not sort of this new phenomenon um it's the way in which we're interacting that that really is uh, i think deeply unique and then i think the other thing that's starting to happen too is we're seeing so much more multimodal um evolution which is really important for healthcare because the idea of image generation or the ability to interpret an image combined with the ability to have human language now you can imagine a radiologist sort of interacting with a large language model based upon uh, the interpretation or the composition of an x-ray. And so these things are going to continue to evolve and they're going to evolve very, very fast. And so what I find unique uh, and what I think led to so much of the explosion of the hype was there is this degree of, of magic about it, but it's also the way that we interact in the world, the way that we interact with each other is predicated upon human language. It's predicated upon, uh, and it's at the foundation of our relationships. It's that ability to communicate with one another. And it seems so captivating when I ask a question and I get this incredible response that I feel like someone's talking back to me. Uh, and I think that that made it very easy to captivate the imagination of mm -hmm. people. Uh, and so now how do you separate where these types of capabilities can be applied, particularly uh, from a healthcare standpoint, but we are really seeing this across uh, all markets. Mm -hmm. And then where do we need to be careful about the application? Where do we need to better define where it's going? And then also recognize there's a ton of more work to do uh, and that these types of solutions and the solutions that we dream about today, uh, may, we may look at in five years and say, how silly were we compared to where we are now? So I, I agree. I think you know, we should be honest, we don't know. But I also think in the same vein, uh, I can certainly see why it's easy to get caught up in the hype. It's really mm -hmm. exciting. Uh, and I think it's yeah. gonna have a profound impact to multiple different uh, different aspects of our lives. Yeah, I think what you're saying with where you uh, type in whatever, and it gives you these just amazing responses. It's, it, I, I just was recently um, hearing how Bill Gates was uh, introduced, and he just was kept on testing it with biology. He's into that. And that really is what blew him away. And um, we're, we're uh, so, so from this excitement to where, where are you like excited specifically as it relates to your arena Advantic or some applications that you're seeing in the next, you know, six to 18 months, would you, would, would yeah. you say? 
So I think the first place is, and this is so needed in, in healthcare right now, it's the reduction of clerical or administrative tasks. It's the ability to take off of the plates of nurses, of doctors, of administrators, whoever it may be, a lot of the routine uh, documentation, getting prior authorization. So some of the things that, that can really be done and leveraged that not just enhance the experience for providers, but bring a lot of that joy back in the practice of medicine. Uh, and so I think that's the first place. So give you a, an example. We uh, were part of an announcement today with a company that we're partnered with, OpticX, who is working uh, at a know-how relationship with the Mayo Clinic to do tele-emergency management response. And so Vantic sort of the underlying architecture that's powering a lot of the real-time in the, the AI. And the goal is to be able to provide emergency management uh, physicians or technicians with sort of a real-time connection through telehealth capability to a, a surgeon or emergency medicine physician, and then simultaneously monitor patients in the back of an ambulance. So this is a complex orchestration uh, problem, but at the whole time, there's a lot of documentation that needs to happen. There may be changes in the clinical condition of the patient, uh, and those medics may be responsible for filling out a sheet. A lot of this can be automated, and the generative AI can produce a report that is predicated upon the template that may be required from a quality or from a uh, retrospective evaluation standpoint. And then what's really unique is that, and not to get overly technical, a lot of this can be pushed into sort of a JSON format. It can be made sort of into a fire-ready uh, component that can be pushed directly into the EMR. And so you're taking away a lot of sort of that, again, administrative tasks in the real-time uh, systems and where people can be more focused on the patient, but we still can capture necessary data, ne capture necessary uh, components for whether it's going back and doing necessary quality or regulatory reviews, or it's just better handoffs and communication, mm -hmm. frankly. So, so that's an area in which we'll be exploring uh, sort of on the horizon. And again, I see a lot of that as really the first wave of where we should be targeting this these types of applications, because we do need to figure this out from not just the, the care delivery standpoint, but we're not going to magically create more doctors and nurses and, mm -hmm. and, and caregivers in the next four or five years. Populations are aging. Uh, and so we're going to need to figure out how we offset a lot of the work that they're responsible yeah. for uh, so that perhaps they can care for more people. So. That's yeah, I, I, I liked what you said with what the gaps of care, the, those um, care handoffs, and that's really making the data flow better with interoperability, solving those little bottlenecks and empowering the, the, the care team. And really those those um, so that that I, I literally can see that I think we need, you know, these examples to help and, and you know, and really to make sure we're not just, uh, you know, so anyway, uh, I think that's really a, a nice example. Yeah. And then where, where we're focused on, where we're really excited is we announced uh, last week about some of our new capabilities. So when you when you think of Vantic and you sort of position it as, as I do, as this digital nervous system, it is this beautiful sort of symphony of orchestration between cloud and edge and prem and, and multiple different complex activities happening at once. But it's an event, it's event driven and it's real time, meaning we have the real time data coming from sensors. And what our engineers sort of imagined was to try to evolve generative AI so where the human is not necessarily having to prompt. But what if the real time data based upon some event that is of interest is actually what generates the prompt in that the, the system then talks to 
you as an individual. So the first time that you engage a large language model is it's connecting to you. Uh, and it's kind of seems a little bit spooky. So, you know, you give a, a better example of sort of a real world uh, uh, use case. My printer was jammed the other day. And so we've all experienced this, right? You, you get the alert and then you go and you pull the paper out and 99% of the time, that's it. But there's always that 1% of the time where you pull the paper out and you close the door and the light's still flashing. Mm. And then you're trying to go through all the steps. So imagine if those sensors were pulled together and that data was contextualized, let's say reinforced by a vector database, trained on that, that printer's manual. And instead of just getting an alert, the computer spoke to me. Hey, paper's jammed. You need to remove it. And here's the things that you need to do. And I pull that sheet of paper out and it says, great job. Looks like you removed the paper, but you still have another jam. You need to go here and do this. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Uh, Vantic makes it really easy to build those types of real-time, what we call situationally aware generative AI applications in which the prompts are automated and the LLM, while you are sort of iteratively talking to it, so to speak, it's being continuously reinforced with the real-time data. So as things are changing in real time, its recommendations and its conversation are changing in real time. I say it's spooky because the applications that we've seen in sort of the early tests, it really does feel like you're talking to the machine. Um, But what's really important from a healthcare standpoint where I see this and get really excited about some of the, the customers that we're working with is It's the ability in real time to not just get an alert that a patient may be at risk of clinical deterioration, but imagine that when that alert comes to a provider, it's then also contextualized with, here's all the medications that have changed in the past 24 hours. Here's a analysis of really what's happening in terms of changing vital signs. Here's missing data. So in and of itself, it's not this sort of idea of it's going to tell you exactly what to do. But as a clinician, what I want is I want rich contextualized information about that patient so that I can make the best next decision. And if I do something, let's say I order a test, it could perhaps say, hey, that's not actually the right test that you should be thinking about. You should be thinking about these tests. So when I think of that conceptually, what I I see happening is this evolution of these real-time systems in which I'm now interacting with the data and the systems, could be systems of record, it could be all the devices connected to a patient, where I'm interacting with all of that information in real time, contextualized by historical data about that individual. And if you think of a a workflow that I have as a hospitalist, I go do rounds, we see patients, we get sort of notes, and then I'll go log into something like UpToDate. And then I'm trying to pull all of the information about what's the evidence-based clinical pathway or the workflow. I'm contextualizing that against the patient and trying to, again, figure out what's the next best step. For the most part, I, I feel comfortable in my practice that I generally know, but I often find myself a lot just double-checking. And so it's moving all of that further into, I would say, an upstream mechanism in which that surfaced for me. I don't have to go do it. That makes Mm -hmm. me more efficient. It makes me Mm -hmm. more effective. uh, And hopefully it enhances sort of the quality and the safety of the care that we're delivering. You know, I feel like um, Doug, um, who's watching uh, part of the audience, had kind of a same similar experience with you, I guess, as a care manager. So he's 
His question yep. is, we have a huge gaps in care between office visits and are basically missing all the follow-up check-ins. So I, I, as I look at it, on everything from medications to anything that the providers are asking the patient to follow up through. Yep. And I guess he's sort of um, pretty much getting at what you were getting at. So I don't know if you want to dive deeper into that or just he's just probably in, in the choir saying amen, I guess. Pretty much. No, look, Doug is exactly right. So we when we think about sort of the, the care connectivity or the care journey, everything still is very much episodic. And even today, I still see a little bit too much of or, right, where it's brick and mortar or it's virtual. And the reality is that a patient with diabetes doesn't stop having diabetes because they leave the hospital, or the office clinic. They have diabetes and they are going to have the normal challenges that we all face in life, whether they're just having a bad day and it's easier to eat eat out uh, or they forget to take their medicines. And so there's so much that's happening. There's so much that's important about who we are as individuals that contributes to our health that is often missed. And what we're starting to see now is the emergence, I think, of more and more and more, not just consumerism, but sort of consumerism driven by an, a, a desire or uh, a capability to be more connected. We're already sort of in a very connected world, but there's wearables that are doing things that they certainly weren't doing five years ago. Our phones contain enormous amounts of data about us as individuals, um, our relationships. And so that tells us a lot about perhaps our mental health or our mental health state, right? Uh, if we stop calling and text messaging people, that may be a sign uh, that something you know may be going on. So, so to Doug's point, I believe there's also this ability to further contextualize because here's what we don't want to happen: uh, we don't want to then sort of make this presumption that oh, we've got all this data, so now we need to pull it to a database and store it. No, that's not the right answer, right? One, the amount of cloud compute just to store all this data and then try to analyze it doesn't make any sense. So I do see a huge evolution in the ability to federate AI, particularly as edge compute and this sort of software sort of becomes more proliferative um, in the edge and kind of lives where we are, that you're going to see the ability to sort of push out AI inference and sort of federate AI where it can still be connected to a large model or trained on sort of large model. Metadata can still be captured to enhance models. But I think you're going to see more compute move to data. And that gives us the ability then to let's say over a week or two weeks, contextualize everything that may have happened in those two weeks and create a report for a provider who can better understand, here's what's happening in the lives of my patients. Now to do that, it needs to be done in a way that we're not just then gonna burden providers even more. So this is where I think things like generative AI can play a really unique role, right? Take these mass amounts of data that are produced over time and contextualize them into sort of easily digestible bytes, which if you think about, if I go and ask uh, ChatGPT and I sort of limit the, the, the tokens, you know, give me the summation of the Roman Empire, it'll pretty much give me a decent summary of an enormous amount of data. I mean, how many books and encyclopedias are written? So, again, it's the ability to sort of still down and pull what's really important and then surface it at the right period of time. Um, so I, I, I think Doug is spot on and we can start to close those gaps. Uh, I think it's going to be incumbent upon us to apply technology in sort of the, the responsible way to close those gaps uh, and, and not let them become further, I would say, differentiated or where we sort of push acute care further away from sort of chronic disease management or, or um, more ambulatory care. 
So we are so doing we generative are doing AI in healthcare and it's trick or treat. So where is the trick? Where's the treat? So let's start with generative AI in healthcare. What is, what is the trick? What, what is it not? <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's not a human. Um, and I think that's really important, right? It's, it's not meant to replace. Now, I, I would argue, and I've heard a lot of people say this, I think you're going to see professionals who aren't using AI or generative AI capabilities supersede or they will replace those that don't. Um, but it's not a human. Uh, and I don't think it's meant to replace us. And so I think when we take it from that context, we should look at it through the lens of how do we use it to sort of enhance collective productivity and knowledge and efficiency and those types of things. The other thing that it is not, and I think this is this is really important, um, it's not a human, which also means it doesn't know that it's getting something wrong, right? It's not purposefully lying to you. It's not sentient. It's not cognizant, right? It's trained to sort of produce the next best word and it'll get that wrong. Well, why? Because I can go on the internet and I can find information that is highly contradictory and wrong. And so that means that we need to be careful and we need to build solutions that are trusted. So I kind of go back to the first thing I said about relationships, right? Relationships at, at, at the forefront, the most important thing about meaningful relationships is trust. And I think, again, putting it into the context of that and thinking about how do we build trusted relationships with AI, whether it's generative or traditional, becomes really, really important. Uh, and so we need to remember that it's not sort of this sort of all-knowing being. It is incredibly impressive in what it can do, um, but we need to trust and we need to verify. So those are things that I think we need to be careful about. Um, and that becomes the trick, right, is that it can feel sort of very genuine uh, and it can feel very alive at times, but it's not. Um, it's a computer system uh, for distilling it down to its most basic principles. Um, so and the other thing, too, is the, the final thing that I'll comment on is it's not the silver bullet. It is not going to fix everything. It is not going to solve everything. Um, it's incumbent upon us to, I think you and I hit on this in the earlier side, to, to be okay with saying we don't know. Um, we should sort of be able to wade through the real use cases and sort of the things that I think are a little bit more hype. Uh, we should put a lot of energy into figuring out good real world evidence that shows where these things are valuable. Uh, and perhaps where they're not, you know, not just in a lab, but really showing the real world efficacy. Uh, and there's lots of examples in healthcare of things that we thought were going to be silver bullets. And then we find out uh, that actually made things a lot worse. So I think those three things are important, right? One and two really centered on the fact, remember, this isn't a human. Um, and so th there's things about it that we should accept. Uh, and I think the other components of this is that, again, defining that relationship, building and sort of centering this on trust, and then recognizing that I think we have a lot more um, work to do to, to get it right and how we implement it. So, so what do you think that, um, that it should not be doing? That's a tough question. So I don't think it should ever be diagnosing a patient and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll parse this off into two components, right? I mean autonomously diagnosing a patient without a human in the loop. Uh, one, because I don't think, and there's even some emergence in, in law reviews 
right now in some cases about liability and, and how do you hold something liable that hasn't been solved yet and i don't know that it will be and then doesn't feel like you could hold the computer system liable so um that's a that that's a that's a challenge but but in and of itself i think you always need a human in the loop you always need the ability to sort of trust and verify and anytime you're building a mission critical system and, and some mission critical application like healthcare you need a human in the loop so that's what i don't think it, it should be used for is sort of autonomous diagnosing um and then the other place that I think you know we should be a little bit skeptical on is I don't think that in and of itself it is solutions out of the box that should just be applied to everyone. Meaning that, and this gets in a little bit into better understanding and from a clinician standpoint, knowing the population that it's been studied on, knowing where it's been scaled. So you know, a, a great study that was done in New York that looked at an AI model, uh, and this was a number of years ago, looked at an AI model that was trained on helping radiologists better predict clinical pneumonia. So if you get into certain situations where you see a clear trait on an X-ray, uh, let's say you see a big white consolidation, and the patient's got a fever and they're coughing, it's sort of easy to say this patient's got a pneumonia. But sometimes you get what's called sort of atelectasis or little things that can appear at sort of the bottom of the X-ray, and that can be hard. And so uh, they developed a really clever model that helped radiologists better determine uh, when community-acquired pneumonia was seen. And so they took it from one hospital and they went to a number of other hospitals. And same city, same general population. What do you think happened when they brought the model to other hospitals? The sensitivity, the specificity plummeted. And the researchers were brilliant because they, they knew that the population was generally the same. What did they do? They looked at all of the other things that matter. They looked at the age of the, radio, the radiology technicians. They looked at the degree of how many films were taken in the radiology room versus were taken portable. They looked at the equipment, the machine. There's all of these other things that we forget about that impact the quality of the model. And so I think we should also be a little bit conscientious or maybe cautiously uh, uh, approaching how we scale things, right? So the idea that we should replicate and apply things to our population to make sure they work. We shouldn't just take things at face value. Mm -hmm. um, a great example of this, particularly in generative AI, because it's language, but we do a lot of work uh, in Japan and Japan is building their own large language models. And you would say, well, if you go ask ChatGPT to translate something from English to, to Japanese, it does a phenomenal job. But you know what it misses? It misses cultural context and things that you and I may understand that are culturally relevant or that are in sort of our language that are missing over there. And sometimes those things can be really, really important. They can cause enormous amounts of mistranslation. I mean, how many times have my wife and I misunderstood each other through text message? So, <laughs> so I think that's the other thing we should be conscientious about is remembering sort of Again, how do these things, whether it's traditional or generative, apply to your population, whether that's cultural context, whether that's remembering that language may be different or the way that we speak to people is certainly going to vary. So um, those are the areas I think we should sort of be you know, cautious about um, or at least conscientious in our application. Yeah, I think you're bringing up some really importance on the UX, the research, almost there needs to be more anthropological like 
study within before the implementation of AI. That, that's what I'm hearing as I'm talking to really smart, super smart people like yourself out there that obviously um, aren't, you know, selling the latest generative AI chat, whatever, G, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're looking at it holistically and they're talking a lot about strategic, how to be strategic with it. Does it make sense? And really going through the different layers. So I really think you you articulated that with you know those examples very well. The the, the challenges to getting it right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always the challenge with technology. And you can have amazing technology and still get it wrong. And one of the things, particularly with these new emerging capabilities. Uh, certainly with AI is I think it's really important in healthcare that practitioners and clinicians are heavily involved in understanding the right ways to incorporate this into not just the workflow, but into the relationship that exists between a clinician and a patient or a patient and the health system or the, or, or the uh, community that cares for them. Right. And so what I really hope, and, and I think this is starting to happen is that, we don't see sort of a unidirectional where, you know, the technology players or the companies are sort of bringing the solutions to, to the, you know, the healthcare market and saying, here you go, you know, which one do you want? Where there's much more bi-directional co-development, co-innovation, and a recognition that that will lead to much better products, products that I think are certainly developed with a degree of trust at the forefront. Uh, some degree of sort of the equitable application there as well. Uh, and I think that that's going to be really important because this is, again, this is moving very, very fast and it's easy to sort of get, uh, you know, sucked up into the vortex, so to speak. Um, and, and, and with some degree of, of reality that this is going to be a big part of our lives. So we, we do need to figure it out. Uh, but, but again, I think having that sort of real bi-directional, uh, and even sort of building mini ecosystems around this in the areas that you're in with the technology companies and the researchers, et cetera, that's really going to be important to getting it right. And we'll fail along the way. And, and that's sort of inevitable. But again, if you're doing this together and collaboratively, we'll all collectively learn. Uh, and I think that'll that'll move everyone forward uh, instead of just sort of in pockets. You know, I'm hearing, I know in healthcare, they have lots of centers of disease excellence, et cetera, to to do different, are, do you see the necessary collaboration with different, um, you, you know, what What do you think could, what systems and kind of socialization aspects could be as a community or a multinational, I mean, different companies, organizations, different stakeholders to, to help get this right? I, I feel like just having these Every three months where the, you know, Elon Musk and his brother and, you know, people would go to Congress and, and sit for an hour, you know, all, all day, that's really not doing much other than I, I don't want to be, you know, saying that these big stakeholders want to regulate everyone else. <laughs> we know we know that kind of play. But what do you think could be done, should be done to make a good framework, if you would, if if, if I'm and you could tell me, no, I think you're, you know, yeah. whatever. What, no, there is a lot of good work going on. There's a couple of things that, that I feel I feel we could do a lot more. Um, and maybe some of this is sort of a you know structural approach, and some of this is my own my own internal bias. 
one of the things that that I, I love about sort of my role is that I get to work with the folks on both sides, right? The end user and the developer and really helping them think through how to apply the technology to the problem that they're solving. And so that gives you a unique vantage point because you're you're not just thinking about the the logic or the workflow that the end user is asking for, but then how do you help the developer have a level of agility or I would say speed in building those solutions, but also recognizing that it's iterative. So I think that the relationships between those that are developing the tools, those that are consuming the tools, and then those that may be developing the underlying infrastructure can mature even further. There's a lot of great work and I can point to tons of companies that I think are really building out ecosystems. So I think that's one way. The other way is that there, while I see sort of a convening of people and a convening of minds, I think another area where we could see sort of better cooperation beyond sort of public-private relationships is that there's a tendency for us to sort of bring all the stakeholders in the room. And then over the course of the day, it's sort of a, a, a readout of what each individual is doing. And, and that helps for knowledge sharing. But there's really unique opportunity for some of these larger convening bodies to bring sort of these groups together and say, we know everybody's doing great work and we want to provide platforms to share and to collaborate. But we also want to come together and maybe target one thing that we can all agree upon to help collectively move forward and use our individual work to influence sort of that that river or that stream. So I think that's another thing where it's it's there is so much going on in our daily lives and we get so busy and we get so sort of tied into our own individual work that the ability for sort of some of these convening bodies to bring that together and to influence, even if it's just one particular objective, I think is is a unique thing that could really help move this forward. Um, so I, I, those are two areas where I, I would hope that we can you know as a as a as an ecosystem broadly in healthcare, whether it's health tech or health services delivery sort of come together and say, hey, how do we how do we do this together? Um, and and not sort of each try to just kind of figure this out on our own. Yeah, I like the one thing. Sometimes you just have to have a one focal point and, and each organization could bring that up. Like what is the best thing that they're working on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean simplify it, right? It, and 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 you don't need to boil the ocean. That's impossible and mm -hmm. people don't have that much time. Um but I certainly can think of a number of things that could come to the top of that list where here's one thing that we all can collectively do and we can learn from each other's unique ways of solving that individual problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that sort of brings everyone together and moves this forward a lot um, in a lot more meaningful way than sometimes the the traditional, you know, here's what I'm working on and, and here, you know, here's the things that we're focused on and then then the next person and the next and the next. Mm -hmm. so. so we're coming towards like the latter part of our show, is there anything that has got you super excited with generative AI that you just, uh, you know, whether you're reading on, uh, dreaming on, just what what is what do you see the future with this? What what's what are you um, what are you what are you really finding um, about a, a generative AI that's really got you fascinated? There's a few things. Um, I'll I'll brag on our engineers about one of them because this one I think is really important. 
uh, we announced sort of a patent pending technology around the ability to I refer to it as significantly enhanced trust in the interaction and the content that you're getting. I, I refer to it as the second opinion. Um, I won't go into full technical details and, and some of it for obvious reasons. But you know, if you go to the doctor and, and there's a complex disease state or, or you know, they seem like they're not really sure, you often have what's called go get a second opinion, right? And, and sometimes second opinions are really valuable. What, what our engineers have built is effectively that. It's the ability that when you're sort of querying a large language model or a prompt is developed, that you can combine not only multiple large language models, uh, but you could combine multiple systems and other systems and use sort of a statistical inference, uh, for lack of better words, to say, if it doesn't meet this, don't return it. And so it's almost as if when you're sort of interacting with it, you're getting multiple opinions about whether the content that it's returning is accurate. Uh, and to me in healthcare, that is really, really profound that we can have systems that are that sophisticated uh, and the ability to then apply those more broadly, uh, particularly in healthcare, not just for clinicians and patients inside the hospital, but as we sort of see more and more care be delivered outside of the hospital and we've got more and more data and more and more people engaging with it, that ability to have more trust, I think that's where you'll see actual increased uptake and utilization. So, so that's something that I'm really excited about is that we're starting to see the emergence of those types of capabilities. The other thing that gets really exciting is the ability to sort of train these models. Well, let me correct that. It's the ability to update the vector, the vector databases without having to retrain the model. It's also the emergence of sort of, I'll call them small language models instead of large language models, small language models that are more geared and trained to very specific tasks or objects or, or sort of uh, content. The reason that that's really important is this is going to significantly bring the cost down. So when you're able to build these really complex systems, um, I think where, you know, certainly we excel at. But you're able to sort of update a vector database in real time where you're not having to go retrain a model, but you need the content. Let's say you're talking about a patient who's hospitalized. You need to have everything that happened during that hospitalization to be recalled, but you can't go add that to the large language model and continuously retrain it. That certainly doesn't make sense and feels like it would be far too costly. Those types of systems are becoming real. And so I think as we're able to build those really sophisticated complex systems more easily, that's where I think you start to get into some of this sort of next generation clinical decision support tools. You can imagine um, talking to a ventilator, you know, a patient on a ventilator, mm -hmm. uh, talking to the ventilator, right? You've got real time data, you've got vitals coming off the patient, you've got tons of information coming off a ventilator and you've got labs and contacts. And so the, the, the patient's ventilator is going off and it's a patient in a rural hospital and they're having trouble getting an intensivist on the call. Imagine a nurse being able to talk to the ventilator, right? Here's why this patient keeps desatting, right? You need to switch from volume to pressure. And so those are a way, right? I mean, there's still a lot of research and regulatory hurdles, but those systems are going to be possible. I mean, we can build them today. Uh, that really excites me, right? It's sort of this real-time, interactive, bi-directional, conversational 
where it's not static. The model is actually continuously updated and reinforced in real time, depending upon the changing patient condition uh, or the, you know, it could be a natural disaster or it could be um, in some of the work that we're doing now uh, on the battlefield for the warfighter. Um, and this gets into, hey, don't don't try to extract the, you know, the warfighter right now because satellites showing these things. So it's right. It's all of that sensor fusion coming in and being contextualized in real time. And again, it goes back to this idea. It's changing the way that we interact and have a relationship with these systems. That excites me because mm -hmm. you can see a, a better future. You can see scenarios um, that when seconds matter, these systems are there for us to mm -hmm. support us. And, and they're really working for us in a reliable, scalable, and a secure fashion. Um, and so I, that gets me really excited. Yeah, and and that's good because that's where you're at, Advantic, and that's really what they do. I mean, you're kind right. of ex explaining kind of their um, edge cloud, um, just just how they're able to do that. Not many companies can do that, and um, I think when I hear this, I hear like Star Wars and Star Trek, and it's like the future. I mean, this is the future is here now, and I think that's. Yeah. I hate to say it, that is the treat of generative AI in healthcare. It's it, that's not the trick. So, um, to be a nurse and be able to talk to the ventilator, and and when you mean talk, that's meaning you're not pushing any buttons. You're actually having that respond. It, it, can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it sort of goes back to that printer, right? We still want the human to be making the decision okay. to be changing the settings, right? But imagine instead of just an alarm going off. It's a message that says, you know, the patient's desatting and here's why, here's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Six months ago when this patient was admitted and let's, you know, for clinical context, let's say this is a patient with end-stage COPD, multiple admissions a year, multiple ventilators. Mm -hmm. It's telling you that this setting worked in this exact setting, okay. right? This ventilator setting, right? So it's, again, it's this sort of amazing ability to provide like this sort of real... Yeah, it's like it's like a Socratic method. I mean, it's like literally yeah. chatting back with you in real time, giving you all that data. And it's like, geez, it's like, gosh, if I could have that with me wherever it's like my it's like the 80 year old having their daughter do everything for the, you know, the, you know, can you fix my iPhone? I can't figure out the app. Yeah, I'll do that for you. Daddy. <laughs> it's like, right. You know, yeah. so I, th those systems are going to come to life. Um and that's exciting, right? Because yeah. I think that that means that we're we're going to be able to sort of provide care that's of higher quality, certainly yeah. safer care, but also for for patients that are in areas, uh, and this is true globally, where there are a shortage of clinicians, yeah. or they're in a situation in which they cannot get to, uh, you know, a, a very sophisticated yeah. ICU immediately. So again, it's sort of the the ability to democratize experience and knowledge and capability mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think we've we've truly seen yet. And then also I think to alleviate frustration, burnout from the provider, if we get it right, I, I know we've yet to get it right with EMRs and all, just charting away, but if we could do this, we really could do it, so. Yeah, agreed. Well, well we, are, we are coming towards, we're getting closer to the end than the beginning. Um, what what's it we're in halloween this is the halloween trick-or-treat generative ai what would you like to send our guest off uh listening to or hearing from ryan dr ryan vega today 
I don't know if I have great departing words of wisdom. Um, uh, if you don't like Reese's for any reason, I'm happy to put my address in the chat, send them all my way. Um, no, I look, I think we're at such a unique time. It's such an exciting time. And I think there are an unfortunate, you know, daily reminder of the challenges that that the world faces. Um, certainly, we're, we're facing enormous challenges in healthcare globally. I was really uh, reminded of that on, on some recent international travel that, you know, we're sometimes very fortunate for what we have in terms of our capability. Um, but technology can play a vital role. And it really becomes in the way that we sort of orchestrate, the way that we apply both in a responsible way, in a meaningful way, and in a practical way. Um, sometimes you don't need sort of solution A for problem A, because solution A is overkill, right? So I think that we're, we're at sort of the precipice um, it's okay for us to say, look, we don't really know where all this is going to go. We still have to figure it out. Uh, but I think the more that we sort of see these ecosystems come together, investments in bringing diverse uh, mindsets, diverse groups of people from all walks of life together, we get better solutions. We're able to better focus on the problems that are, are really, um, uh, I would say, driving some of the challenges that we face and targeting those problems more specifically. Uh, and then we all kind of evolved, right? And, and and so that that's a, I think that's a really unique and exciting time, uh, both to be in medicine, but but really to to be alive and to see sort of the, you know, being on the precipice of enormous amount of transformation technologically that that's going to happen over the next decade. Well, Dr. Ryan Vega, I have to consider you for sure a friend. It's been great, uh, not only to have you as a friend here on the show, but to just really lead us. Um, you know, enlighten us on generative AI, what Vantic's doing, what you're doing as the chief health officer there. Uh, this has been a great time. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I wish you continued success with everything you're doing um, as a clinician champion, you know, integrating technology. This has been awesome. Well, yeah, appreciate you having me on. I'm glad we did the Halloween. I think we may have to make this a, a yearly tradition. <laughs> Yeah, we will. And definitely, definitely candy. We're, we're, we don't want the, the, the trick. We'll, we'll take the treat. Absolutely. Friends, it has been a great journey today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Follow us for more on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Until next time, peace be with you.